Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a special series of discussions about US politics and the Trump presidency, or as we journalists call it, the gift that keeps on giving. I'm Freddie Gray, I'm deputy editor of The Spectator, and today I'm going to be talking to Tucker Carlson, who is a Fox News anchor and founder and editor-in-chief of the Daily Caller website. You're probably not going to like this, but I'm going to start by talking about the Michael Wolff book. You're probably sick of it. But I, I think, I mean, it seems to me that the, I don't think Trump has necessarily been affected negatively by this book so far. But the, the thing that surprised me is how quickly Steve Bannon has collapsed as a, as a public figure. Have you been surprised by that? I think that was a long time coming. Yeah. I think, um, I don't think I know that Trump was highly annoyed for a long time about the implication that he Bannon got him elected. It um, brought out his com- his competitive instincts. Yeah. Um, he doesn't like to share credit and, you know, you could debate how much credit he should share. You know, I, you know, it's an entirely subjective conversation, but um, I know that the president resented, you know, the magazine covers with Bannon calling him Trump's brain or things like that drove, Trump crazy. Yes. And I think Bannon is a, you know, is a difficult guy to get along with in the first place. I think it's, it's interesting that, I mean, it, both his friends and his enemies think that Bannon has this dark genius. But in the last couple of days, you've seen people coming out and saying he's not actually as smart as people think he is. I've never thought he was particularly smart. Really? Ever. Yeah. No. And I dealt with him extensively because he ran, you know, a, a, a website not so different from the one that I ran. Yes. And um, we had a lot of overlap in staff. He hired a lot of my reporters and we were running a for-profit company and he, he wasn't. He had kind of endless funding from various donors. And so um, he just had a much higher budget than I had. Yeah. And so he outbid me on a lot of different people. And so I dealt with him a lot and I, I never was impressed by him. Not for one. In fact, I thought he was profoundly unimpressive, but, but so is a, so a lot of the country and sometimes the most aggressive person kind of bulls his way to the front. And that's what that was about, in my opinion. And, but did you think he was sincere always? Or did you think he was sort of shilling off the Tea Party movement? No, I thought he was fairly sincere, actually. I yeah. mean, I thought that um, I think some of his instincts are, were, were right. And I thought that you know, he's certainly brave. Yes. I mean, he doesn't, he really doesn't care what people think of him, which I always was impressed by. I mean, he had good qualities for sure. Yeah. But he wasn't, he hadn't thought through a lot of the ideas he claimed to hold. You know, he was a classic, one of these guys who's read five books and considers himself educated <laughs> kind of thing, was always telling you what some book he'd been reading, but you knew he didn't really read it. Yes. You know what I mean? That guy kind of, and I, he he's not. I mean, he went to Harvard. He's hardly self-educated, but he had that kind of vibe of someone, right? But who's insecure about it? I mean, I I've known some very smart people who didn't go to school who really are self-educated through reading. But he he struck me as always a poser in that way. Yes, and looking at not how the book affects Trump necessarily, but how there seemed to be an impression, certainly on this side of the Atlantic, that Trump was becoming. Slightly more liked in elite America in the last few months, certainly by the Republican establishment after the tax cut. And I suppose this major falling out with Bannon, you can you can see, in fact, in a lot of editorials, that there's a hope now that Trump will become very distant from the politics that Bannon represents. 
Well, there is that hope, and that's the downside of this, because, I mean, Bannon was always half right, and it was an important half of the equation. Bannon understood and was willing to say is that people in charge have no idea what they're doing, and to the extent they do, are acting against the interests of the people they claim to represent. Mm. And he's absolutely right in that way. The elites are deeply unimpressive. The system is rotten and corrupt. It benefits a, a, a small number of people to the detriment of everyone else. Like, that's all true. And God bless him for saying that out loud. He just was never clever enough to figure out how to make it better mm. or to identify like-minded people. Like he was, uh, you know, he never understood, he didn't understand the ideas he claimed to be espousing, but he understood that much. And that's the real reason people in Washington hated him because he was a threat to their sinecures. And, um, and so to that extent, it's really a shame that he's been eliminated. And I think he has been. I suppose the sane hope perhaps is that there'll be a sort of new middle ground now between Bannonism, if you want to call it that, and the Republican Party, and that Trump can exploit that middle ground? Maybe. I mean, I guess that would be preferable to what's likely to happen, which is just a total and complete victory by the forces of Paul Ryan. Yes. You know, people whose only real interest is a corporate tax cut, for example. Yes. You know, who don't at all understand why Trump run, won and have no affinity for or empathy for his voters, find them all contemptible. Hmm. You know, I mean, the destruction of Bannon, the loss of the candidate in Alabama, Roy Moore, hmm. you know, these are pretexts that the permanent Republican class can use to dismiss any kind of populist element from within the party. And that's just a shame. I mean, it's a shame. You know, far preferable would be if the leadership of the Republican Party paused for a moment after last year's election to think through the implications of it, like what were voters trying to tell us? You know, but it's just so interesting to me how little lawmakers seem to care about what the public thinks of their policies. Yes. <laughs> you know, so for example, the majority of Americans think we ought to reduce legal immigration. Not illegal, legal immigration, the over one million people admitted legally every year because the demographic change is destabilizing the hell out of the country, and there's no economic justification for it. And so people are against it. But there's not even a conversation about doing that. Whereas in the same month, the Republican Party mobilized all of its forces to pass a tax package that the public didn't want. Yeah. Its own voters didn't want it. So it's just amazing to me how little attention lawmakers in this purported democracy pay to voters. That's, that's the thing. I mean, like, no matter what your views are or my views are, if you believe in democracy, then you think that the system ought to be responsive to the majority, or at least should ignore it. But in my country, as in yours, that's kind of, that's kind of the way things are done now, and, and, and that's why you had Brexit, and that's why you had Trump. I mean, as much as anything, it's a reaction against the total unwillingness even to listen. It's fascinating. Yes. It's more about sort of getting away with it, right? Yes. Yeah. It certainly is here. Let's talk a bit about DACA. I, I saw you gave quite a strong statement on Fox about that a few nights ago. You, this is the um, deferred action for childhood arrivals. It's a sort of amnesty for illegal Immigrants, is that right? That's, it's a sort of nice-sounding amnesty for illegal immigration. Well, it is amnesty. Um, what they're proposing is amnesty. And so basically, 
this was a very clever unilateral move by the Obama administration in its final years to declare basically an amnesty for people who came here as minors, and that would include people who came literally as children or infants mm. brought by their parents and people who came across under their own volition as you know 17-year-olds. And so they're in a kind of tough spot, some of these people. I mean, some of them were brought here by their parents as small children, and they don't have anywhere to go. And, you know, it's a, it's one of the kind of many sad, unjust things that happen in our world. But what's so striking to me, and so I'm, you know, I, I feel for those people, but what's so striking to me is that both parties have decided that in a country where, you know, 60,000 people died of drug ODs last year and 100 million aren't working, that this is the most important thing. This is priority number one. We're literally going to shut down the government until we do right by these people, by these whatever, 80,000 or whatever these people are. Today, you have a, another sort of heart-rending element of the El Salvadorians, which will be, that'll generate... I guess, I mean, this is, you know, one-third of the entire Salvadoran population lives in the United States. One-third. One <laughs> of every three Salvadorans lives in the U.S. That's staggering. So you can't really say that the U.S. hasn't kind of done its part to help El Salvador if yes. by helping a country... You define that as letting its citizens move here and make more. Yeah. So, but, but but I guess look, you know, the details are debatable in each of these examples. But what's not debatable is that nobody asks them the only real question, which is what's best for the United States. Yeah. And its citizens and its voters and the people whose country this is, the people who who own this place, and their concerns are not even uh, you know discussed. And again, the, all of this is just ensuring that we're going to get another Trump or that the drama will continue, that you know, that nothing will return to normal until the basic promise of democracy, which is pay attention to voters, is fulfilled, and they're not. Yes. Actually, there was quite a good debate, I'm sure you saw it, the, the, between um, Stephen Miller and Jake Tapper, which was quite revealing of this, in that Stephen Miller really, he was actually answering the questions, but Jake Tapper refused to listen to him. And, and it ended with Miller sort of saying... Um, you know, you just want to, I want to say what the American people want to hear. And he was sort of shooed off the air, which I thought was quite indicative of how CNN covers this stuff. I mean, look, there are issues that undergird all of these debates. And, you know, I think the president's mental fitness is a valid topic of conversation and probably an important one. And, you know, so is his temperament and his tweeting. And I mean, these are all things, you know, that the average person has a right to care about. Mm. But are they more important than, you know, who comes into the country and how many and what does it mean to be a citizen and are our borders real? I mean, those are those are like existential questions that any country has to answer. And those are being basically ignored in favor of the dumbest kind of coverage. And that's really the problem I have. It's not that the press hates Trump. It's that they're unwilling to discuss the issues that Trump got Trump elected. Why? Because it's demonstrable. Yes. And there's a lot of polling on this. The public has a very different view on the issues from the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, which are the cities that provide, you know, 95% of all, you know, newsrooms. And, you know, the people who run the country disagree with the people they're supposedly representing. And that's, that's the core tension. But I guess it's not just an elite problem, is it? Because, I mean, everybody finds the the details of the court intrigue of the Trump White House quite titillating. 
Yeah, they're they're interesting. I mean, I, and I, I it's something that I'm, I'm not prone to anguish or a lot of self reflection, but I, I I do sometimes wonder if I'm adding to that. I I don't. I mean, look, I think it's interesting, and and I of course I know I, I'm from here, so I know everybody involved, and I'm you know I yeah. so it. But I wondered, am I inflating the inherent importance of this stuff um, to the detriment of like things that actually matter, and not you know, not theoretical things, but like actual, like actual things, like, I don't know, the inability of the Congress to run the country or to write a budget or to, you know what I mean? Fund the government. Like these are kind of big issues, I think. Yes. Maybe it's just more of a societal problem that these people are too bored by these very important issues to, to do anything about them. Well, but I don't think that's quite, I mean, part of that of, of course is true. And famously Americans are not as interested in foreign policy as Europeans are just because of the of the geography of the country, you know, we're separated from the rest of the world, and, yeah. and that I think that's shows. I think that's exaggerated, away. actually. I, I think, I mean, in, in my experience, Americans are. Uh, much yeah, more. but they're not. Maybe not as much. I mean, I don't know. You can debate how much you should be interested in any question, but yeah. But I, I definitely think that the press, the grave disservice, the worst disservice they do their readers and viewers is that they don't even address a lot of these issues because they know that their view is so very different from that of the rest of the country. So they just don't want to talk about it. Going back to immigration, Trump needs to, before the midterms, would you say it's fair to say, I've heard other people say it, that Trump needs a big result on immigration if he's going to not get, or if the Republican Party are not going to get seriously beaten up in the midterms? Well, I don't really know what the point of the Trump election was otherwise. I mean, so companies could get a tax cut, really? I mean... At a time, look, and I'm, you know, I, I think the tax bill is very complicated, and there are elements of it that I, I thought were good, and other elements I didn't like. But, but the, you know, but the salient feature of the bill was this corporate tax rate cut, and if that's the sum total of the legislative achievements in the first term, then you know it's hard to run on that. It's hard to look at that and say, you know, we, we kind of did what you asked us to do. Will the inevitable compromise be that they that Trump agrees to something that makes him look as though he's going to be tough in the future? But actually, nothing really changes on immigration. Yeah, I think it's possible they'll try that. I, I don't think that they would get away with that in this environment. There are too many people watching. It's been tried too many times before. Yeah, I think, and I think that that's really a familiar strategy. Mm. And I think there are a lot of people on the right, a lot of Trump voters who are actually paying attention. And, and, and you can understand it. I mean, you know, the alternative minimum tax you know, in the tax code is so complex, my accountant couldn't explain it to me clearly. But everyone understands if you sneak into the country, are we going to make you leave or are we going to let you vote? I mean, it's yeah. pretty simple. And so I think there's going to be more scrutiny on that. And if I were to ask you to sort of guess at what's going to happen in the midterms now, what would you say? Well, I mean, I, if there have only been a couple of midterms, first term midterms where the president's party didn't lose a lot of seats. Mm. I think it's just a basic instinct for divided government that voters have. You don't want to vest too much power in any one party. I think it's probably a pretty good instinct over time. Uh, I think voters are right about that. One glaring example to the rule was 1998 when the Republicans impeached Bill Clinton and Democrats actually gained seats. Um, so that was maybe a lesson to Democrats. I mean, no, you know, Trump's got a lot of flaws. Most of them are pretty obvious. Mm. 
but I don't think that he colluded with the Russian government. It's insane, actually. It's it's insane. It's a fantasy. It's a fever dream. And most people understand that. And more than a year in, there's no evidence that that happened. And if they keep pushing that, I think it's possible they could overplay that position to the extent that they hurt themselves. Because really, I mean, are you really going to vote? Like everyone I know believes that Trump colluded with Putin just because they hate Trump. He's an offense against everything they believe. He's a threat to them personally, and so they've convinced themselves this is true. But I don't live in an average zip code, obviously, or live in an average world. Does the average American, even a moderate Democrat, does he think, wow, man, the one thing I want is the president to go to jail for colluding with Vladimir Putin? I just don't believe that. I think you've got to offer voters more than that, and they haven't. Yeah, we actually have a similar narrative if you like playing out here of, of how russia hacked brexit and again i'm just not sure how many people believe it the russia hacked brexit I've, I've read that it's just hard to believe i mean it's it's a symptom and i wish i for the first time in my life i wish i were a licensed psychiatrist because <laughs> i could explain the syndrome with greater precision but you're, ha- you're you're clearly watching people who are unable to face up to the truth which is their leadership is being rejected. Mm. And I understand that that hurts. I'm in television. I face the music every day with ratings. And when my ratings are low, I know it's a referendum on how people feel about me. Okay. If you don't like it, go do something else for a living. (laughs) But politicians are very similar and it's hard for them to face the truth, which is voters are dissatisfied with them. They're not impressive. They haven't done a good job. Their stewardship of their countries has been appalling and they've gotten rich in the process while the middle class of their countries are dying. And that's true in the UK, and it's true here. So I don't know why it's so hard. For, I mean, I guess I do know why, but that, that kind of explains everything you're seeing with Russia, I think. Yeah. Well, actually, one thing that voters were clearly or clearly have been very disappointed with is American foreign policy in the last... Again, we can exaggerate how much foreign policy means to Americans, but certainly after Iraq, there's a general disgruntlement with... American foreign policy and fighting unnecessary wars. Do you think Trump has been a success on foreign policy so far? No, I don't. And I think that's that's the part of his campaign speech that he's been the quickest to ignore. And I think the reason is really simple. He's not that interested. He didn't fully understand what he was saying. Mm. And the only time in his year and you know his his year in office when he's received positive news coverage. There's only been one occasion where he received overwhelmingly positive news coverage, and that was when he lobbed cruise missiles into Syria, yeah. comma pointlessly. Yeah. With no, but by the way, on the, the pretext was ludicrous that somehow less than a week after the U.S. government announces it's no longer seeking regime change in Syria, that Bashar al-Assad, who's canny if nothing else for no obvious strategic reason, uses poison gas against his own people, basically doing the only thing he could do to reverse a U.S. policy that helped him. Yeah. And on the base of no evidence, we're supposed to believe this actually happened. Well, I don't believe it, flat out. And I told the White House that in a call two weeks ago. They're trying to tell me, oh, no, he got – no, I don't believe you. Where's the evidence? There's no evidence. So I think it was made up, and on the basis of that, the president – you know, blows up an airport. It didn't even hit the runway. <laughs> and yet everybody in Washington, like trained seals, applauds because we have a bias in favor of action versus inaction, you know, and it's, it's mindless. It's childish. The public doesn't support it. 
and yet every policymaker on both sides supports it, and it's extremely as, – as like one of the only people in the entire District of Columbia who doesn't agree with that, I can tell you it's infuriating to watch it. Yeah. Do you think there's something similar in the, in the North Korea stuff? In that, uh, of course there is. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. Pakistan? You think North Korea is threatening? Go to Pakistan for a week. I have. Yeah. I mean, at least North Korea has the benefit of a you know an entirely effective command and control <laughs> structure. I mean, it's a it's a totalitarian government actually, whose actions are basically predictable. It seeks self preservation. That's not hard to understand. So I'm not you know in favor of North Korea having nuclear weapons or any weapons actually. Of course, however. Compared to what? You know, France, by the way, also has the bomb. Are we comfortable with that? I mean, there are a lot of nuclear weapons in this world. And the idea that, you know, five, eight years after they got the got a nuclear weapon, we all of a sudden can't tolerate it because why? We need to go to war where there's not a single scenario I've ever heard that doesn't entail hundreds of thousands of innocents dying. Mm. I mean, it's I actually think it's demented. Um but again, I'm, I think I'm the only person I know who thinks that. But I, I mean, I, I've noticed on, on the right and even to a certain extent to the left, there's a sort of acceptance that this aggression towards North Korea is starting to pay dividends and that China is, you know, now imposing sanctions. China's accepting that sanctions will be But again, if you want to drain the swamp, the first thing you need to do, the first thing you need to do is hold people accountable for the big mistakes of the past 20 years. Mm. And first among those mistakes is the Iraq invasion. Now, I'm not saying Paul Wolfowitz should be in prison, though maybe I feel that way. I'm not going to say it out loud. But at very least, you need to make it clear that we understand it was a mistake, and we've learned the elemental lessons of it, just the basic stuff. And nobody is willing to do that because it implicates basically everybody in Washington on both sides. Democrats voted for that war. And so as a result of this unwillingness to have a reckoning with the truth and with their past mistakes, nobody has internalized the lessons, which are vital lessons mm. of that conflict. And the first is you don't really know what the consequences of an action like that are going to be. You don't. Unintended consequences are the rule. And you, by definition, you don't know what they are. So like this idea that, oh, if we do this and do – like it's a Rube Goldberg machine. We press one button and – you know, a series of expected outcomes will occur. What? Are you a child? No, that's not the way life is. Are you kidding? We have no freaking idea what would happen if, if we if we precipitated a conflict over there. Are you kidding? Yeah. Anyway, whatever. You, you really get me going. This stuff, this makes me mad, like for real mad. I think it's just, and it's like it. it but do you think, that, do you think, do you, sorry, sorry, Carrie. <laughs> no, 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 I need to stop because I'm getting too uh, well, I mean, but do you think Trump has imbibed this lesson at all? I mean, I would suggest that the, the Iran tweets, in terms of rhetoric, he doesn't seem to have done. But if you look at the actual actions, apart from the lobbying of bombs against Assad as a sort of token gesture, there doesn't seem to be, I mean, the war in Afghanistan goes on, but there has not been any actual great military escalation so far. Well, it's been a year. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm hopeful that there won't be, and there are circumstances that demand war, and there's no alternative, and I understand that. Mm. But there are many of them. The United States hasn't won a war since 1945. Yeah. So our track record, and we lie to ourselves about this, of prosecuting successful wars, and by successful I mean wars that help the United States, which is the whole point mm. of having an army is to protect your own country, to help your country. 
um, there's no recognition of how bad at that we have been. Um, so look, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful, but uh, here's what people under, and I'm not going to go on and reveal myself to be like a true conspiracy wacko because I'm actually not. But on this one subject, mm. there is massive pressure to go to war with Iran, massive from within Washington, and it comes from a couple of foreign governments. And but it also comes from the intellectual class here in D.C. that believes that Iran, as they're often telling you, is the world's greatest sponsor of terrorism. I mean, it's like it's nuts, actually. How many Americans have been killed by Shiite terror in the United States in the last 30 years? Let's see, right around zero. Zero, yeah. <laughs> How many? Right, exactly. So look, I'm not this, I'm not endorsing Iran. I'm just saying, like, are you joking? Like, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. And there are other countries that are concerned about Iran. And it's hegemony in the region and all that. I mean, I, I understand why if you're the Saudis, any of the Gulf states, if you're Israel, you'd be concerned about Iran. And I think those are legitimate concerns for them. Mm. And I don't begrudge them those concerns at all. I mean, I, I get it, definitely. And I know why they're upset about Hezbollah. I understand that. But it's not clear how that intersects with America's interests. And so what I resent is being used, and we are being used, um, to fight other people's wars. I think that that's that, – I mean why wouldn't that rile any American? Yeah. Any patriotic American would be upset about that, and I am upset as a patriotic American as the, and as the father of a 20-year-old son. Like I'm not for that. Why would I be? Well, do, you, do you think – I mean when it comes to foreign policy then and perhaps even domestic policy, judging from this conversation, the swamp always wins. The house always wins. The swamp always wins. Well, I mean I think it's – you know, you yeah, I mean for sure. But I mean, there are a couple of you know there are a couple of things you could change. I mean, I think you you probably could, if you were to articulate it clearly and stay on it. You know, there are a couple of things you could probably change, but you could definitely avoid conflict with Iran if you really wanted to. And and this, let me just say, you know that. Steve Bannon, this is like a perfect example of Steve Bannon like getting it half right. So Bannon sort of understood and, and often said that long term, of course, the th- greatest threat to America's role in the world is China, obviously. Mm. There's really kind of no debate about that, but we're not behaving as if that were true, and we should. It doesn't mean conflict with China, but it means like sort of think through your policies toward China, acknowledging that they're you know, a rival the main rival. Mm. So he says that on the one hand, and I think he's absolutely right. And then on the other, he advocates for Nikki Haley to take over the UN ambassador position, which is at least symbolically a a more powerful position than the title would suggest. And Nikki Haley is, I'm not attacking Nikki Haley, but like she is, she's on team Bill Crystal when it comes to this stuff. Like she is very conventional in her views of the rest of the world. And so I, I, it's hard to see, you know, someone who had who really understood his own ideas would not have done that. Yeah, uh, wouldn't have considered doing that. Um, it was weird behavior, but not weird once you realize that Bannon is actually not a genius. It's not a genius, but I mean, isn't that the most troubling thing in a way that Bannon just was a genius compared to Trump, or at least the, I'm not saying that Trump isn't smart because I think that's a different discussion. But the, the public figure of Trump is so short attention span, sort of unable to address issues coherently, that someone like Bannon does seem strategically smart. Of course. I mean, any president needs people around him, maybe this more than most, but any president does, 
needs people around him to help translate his instincts into policy. And I think Trump's instincts are basically right, yeah. but not always, but basically they are. They're consistent with what voters said they wanted, and that's what matters. And he needed someone, and I think still does need someone, to help him to explain what that means, you know, in Washington terms. And, um, and Bannon, you know, was in that role and was not equal to it, unfortunately. Well, Tucker, we're going to end it there. But thank you so much for talking to us. Great pleasure. Oh, man, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a Spectator Moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. (laughs) 